Hey, No Wrong Answers listeners, before this episode gets started, I wanted to let you know again about a live event we have coming up that I'm really excited about. And I think you'll be excited about it, too, especially if you live in the Kansas City area. No Wrong Answers is hosting a live town hall forum Thursday, May 10th at 7 p.m. It's called School Choice, Is It Working? We're going to have a panel featuring Kansas City Public Schools Superintendent Mark Bedell, University Academy Charter School Superintendent Tony Klein, plus KCUR Kansas City Public Radio education reporter Ellie Moxley. You can sign up for this event at No Wrong Answers Facebook page. Again, this is Thursday, May 10th at 7 p.m. at Paseo High School here in Kansas City. Hope to see you there. This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. Students in America are politically fired up, but does that mean they'll vote in the fall? Well, there's one school that already has a statistically proven impact on its kids' voting rates. That plus learning styles, are they BS? A mounting body of research suggests so, but our teachers say not so fast. Plus, do you have a colleague that can't seem to plan for themselves and always asks for your plans? We have solutions in another edition of You Could Try This. All that plus kids these days on this edition of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned journalist. And I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Greg Brenner, what do you teach? Teach social studies at the high school. Elaine Jarden, what do you teach? Middle school math. And Bakari Akuu. What do you do in education? Middle school vice principal. All three of them are educators at public schools or public charter schools here in the Kansas City metro area. Well, let's get to it. Getting kids to vote. It's been a perennial problem for civics groups, social studies teachers, and generally older Americans who wring their hands about the state of youth today. But many people think the 2018 midterms could be Different spurred by the survivors of the Parkland, Florida school shooting, there is a growing nationwide effort to register teens to vote in this fall's midterms as a way to send a message to politicians who are recalcitrant on gun control. Here is prominent student leader David Hogg addressing the March for Our Lives rally in Washington, D.C. back in March. First-time voters show up 18% of the time in midterm elections. Not anymore. Now, who here is going to vote in the 2018 election? If you listen real close, you can hear the people in power shaking. So Hogg and his friends have brought a lot of attention to the idea of having your voice heard at the ballot box. But our teachers, as they've watched students, both their own and around the country, become more politically engaged over the issue of gun control in recent weeks, they've also uh, expressed their worry that this energy and enthusiasm that they're seeing is simply not sustainable, that it won't last. With that on our minds, a new bit of timely research came to our notice. With all this talk of teens voting, it turns out there is a network of charter schools based in New York City that has been particularly good at getting its students to vote. The school network, not coincidentally, is called Democracy Prep, and we are joined by its civic engagement coordinator, Viviana Perez. Uh, Viviana, thank you for joining us here at No Wrong Answers. 
Hi, how are you doing? Uh, well, let me just go over the headlines of this research. Mathematica published a study last month. Here's the headline conclusion. Democracy Prep increases the voter registration rates of its students by about 16 percentage points and increases the actual voting rates of its students by about 12 percentage points. The study's authors note, quote, given the low registration and voting rates of young adults nationally, these are substantial impacts, end quote. So, uh, so this paper by Mathematica outlines several things that your school or your school network does explicitly, explicitly around voting, actually. Can you talk about those? Each of our schools engage in get-out-the-vote campaigns during the election cycle. Students as young as kindergarten go out into the community and do get-out-the-vote chants. We have middle school and high school students who also do voter registration on the streets. They have lessons prior, so they're able to do that. And then during the elections, they also go over lessons related to either the candidates or topics of interest to them. The reason we have get-out-the-vote drives is so that they actually also vote when they're able to. So that's what the research study delves into, but also to engage people in their community. We're working in typically disenfranchised communities that, especially prior to the 2008 uh, election of President Obama, had lower voting rates than other parts of the country. So we wanted to also make sure not only that our students vote when they are 18 years old, but they're also helping their community vote and telling them about the different voting regulations that maybe in their community. Oh, and then they'll come back to class and they'll debrief that process. They also do mock elections for most of the elections as well. So that's also something that I found to be instrumental to them voting. I've had many students tell us that they weren't thinking about voting until they did a mock election in their class and it made them go through the process themselves and really get energized and excited to vote when they are able to. And so what is it about the mock elections you think or what your students have told you that is an effective way of at least introducing them to the idea of voting the process and, and, and what that, uh, I guess, entails? So we do as much as we can to have it be as closely resembling a real election. So in some of the classrooms, we'll have a ballot box that they go up to. The form will try to resemble what the actual voting form looks like. And I think really importantly, we share the results of the election with them. So we'll be able to tell them this percentage of, let's say, for the final presidential election, this percentage of the school, your middle school in particular, voted for Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump. This percentage of New York City voted and like our entire network voted this way. So they're actually able to see how they fare in comparison to other adults that are voting. And it makes it more real for them. I want to bring our teachers in, uh, Greg Bakari, Elaine. Uh, Greg, you're a social studies teacher. Uh, we've talked actually frequently about how you try to get your kids engaged, not only in school, but in the larger social process. And at times you have voiced anxiety about how you, you worry your kids might not maybe carry through with some of the enthusiasms or energy they're showing about a particular topic out in the real world, so to speak. So I wonder if you have any, any questions to, to Viviana about what is going on. So Viviana, I, w- I don't know if you can speak to how you meld your state standards in with what you're doing in terms of civic engagement um, and how, you, how do you balance the two? How do you balance making sure those, those standards are taught while also doing all of, all of this engagement? In terms of the curricular integration, we really focus on that at key points within our curriculum, especially at the high school and at the elementary level for our standards integration. We're in various regions, so each principal and each executive director in that region really oversee that. But in terms of the American government, we have our senior seminar, their senior year, which takes the 
American government standards and looks at it from a more civics perspective. They also have an elective their senior year. It's called a Change the World class where they go through a sociology of change. They look at change agents, and then they design their own projects. And then at the elementary school level, we really focus on integrating it into their social studies and their writing curriculum. So we look for any kind of over, overlap that can be. Um, maybe one other follow-up question, and this kind of pertains to uh, the situation where, where I'm at, where I have a large number of uh, undocumented students, and I don't know if any of your schools uh, follow that, and how do you engage those students who are undocumented, who, who even if they're of age, they cannot vote? I would say we have students who are, whether they're documented or undocumented, engage in a lot of this. I would even say that population might be more engaged. They see the opportunity for them to have a change in the world. So we really push students proposing different initiatives. We call them civic initiatives at our campuses. So we want it to be less about the teacher saying, here's something important happening in the community. You guys should be really up in arms about this. Rather, we want to present them with current events and news from around the globe and have them decide on the topic. So we've had students come up to principals and school leaders and myself really proposing, like, we really want to engage in this, we really want to engage in this. And then we help them craft whatever protest or walkout or lesson plan that they might want to do it. I was wondering about how these types of activities might look at the building level. For example, what do student councils look like at your school? Are there ways for students to be involved in civic activities more locally? Yes. So virtually all of our middle and high school campuses have a student government. They are run by one teacher advisor. As in many students' governments, they have the vice president, president, they have the treasurer. They also do a lot of voting on the issues that are important to them. So we really try to push the students making sure that they're the one coming up coming up with the idea. So at the beginning of the year, it's gradual release of control. Mm-hmm. Of course, the adult is going to bring more ideas to the table, but really by the middle of the year, towards the end of the year, we want them running the meetings. We want them coming up with the proposals. Each of our campuses also has a student proposal process, whether it be a rule that they want to amend, a new club that they want to have, or something else drastic. They will have to write a proposal, and then they would then give it to their schools, either the person who's a civics coordinator at their campus or their principal, and they would then have a conversation about how to make change at their own campus level. At many of our campuses, student governments who have proposed and then run blood drives, students in student government who have um, proposed and then run drives for many of the hurricanes that unfortunately happened at the beginning of the year, So we're really pushing them to do as much as possible and helping them as needed. And I guess just to bring it full circle back to what I started with, you know, this year, teens are more active since the Parkland school shooting. You see the the rallies and the marches and the student walkouts. Um, I guess for you, I guess for a, a network of schools that has had this issue front of mind for a long time, even before this year, do you notice a change in um, activity or what students are talking about or the energy they have uh, leading into the 2018 midterms? I would say, and I'm thinking about this more in terms of what happened after the activism of the Parkland students, that our students beforehand were making change on a very individual level because we tried to either bring to them opportunities that might help one or two of them say, this. I think this might be really good for you, you should apply for it, or throughout their senior project where they're designing a project individually that impacts the community. What I saw from that is we had groups of an entire student council or multiple students make proposals for their own walkouts. And all of our walkouts were student proposed, student led, and not just during the planning process, but also outside. They all lasted for between half an hour to an hour. 
also there was really a change in the collective sense of their power. I think they now see that, oh, it's not just me trying to make a change in my community amongst my friends. It's me with my friends making a change in our community. And I think they will definitely bring this to the upcoming elections once we start talking to them in depth about it. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, and entrepreneurs and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City's students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. Well, it's a popular truism of modern education. Students learn better if they are taught with their particular learning style in mind. Think videos and graphics for visual learners, lectures, and think pair shares for aural learners, physical games in motion for kinesthetic learners. But a growing body of research suggests the concept of learning styles is, to put it in scientific terms, complete BS. The latest salvo, a study published last month in the journal Anatomical Science Education with this title, Another Nail in the Coffin of Learning Styles. That study had hundreds of students take a well-known learning styles questionnaire to gauge what their learning style was and then found when given something to study for, very few of those students actually used strategies that correlated to their supposed learning styles. And more importantly, when they did, it had no discernible positive impact on their academic performance. Still, recent surveys show upwards of 90% of teachers still believe learning styles or are a thing. So why does that matter? Well, Dr. Ticia Marshik, a professor of psychology at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse and a longtime learning styles skeptic, gave a TED Talk a few years back and said this. And teachers today, many teachers are still told that part of their job in order to be effective teachers is to figure out what their students' learning styles are and then to accommodate them for the classroom. There are even a host of companies and organizations out there that support learning styles and who, for a fee, will train you on how to maximize your potential or that of your students right, by addressing learning styles and learning what yours are. So does this sound familiar to our teachers? Have your schools and the trainings that you've received put a lot of emphasis on appealing to students' learning styles? Yes. Yeah. Bakari, you're also not Yeah, your head. I, I would definitely agree. This is kind of like in the educational zeitgeist. Like, this is just something that everyone kind of assumes to be true. Yeah. But I get the sense from you all, maybe... You don't, I actually you don't... do subscribe to learning styles. Okay, so tell me more. <laughs> tell me more. I find that when I was in the classroom, I can see the different students respond differently to the way that I presented materials. Maybe learning styles is too broad of a term. It's maybe just like learning preference in that moment because it can change. Today, I may be a better visual learner depending on the topic or the content being presented. But I think it's important that we are being very intentional about differentiating and, and showing content in multiple forms so that it can reach a broader uh, student base. Yeah, maybe part of the problem is semantics. I mean, I, I encountered learning styles that dates me 20 years ago in, in my master's program. And even then, I thought it was BS. But maybe what I've come to realize is that there's different modalities and trying to hit kids on those two different, like may, at least two different ways of presenting the information, it, it helps it's, the information stick more in the student's my, mind. And that's not necessarily a learning style's preference. It just, it, it just seems to happen that kids, that if you are presenting information, if you present it in multiple different ways, you're going to reach them better. Right. I mean, I feel like it's just 
learning period, we all know that kids retain more of what they read than what they hear. Mm -hmm. And we all know they retain more of what they experience than what they read or what they hear. What bothers me is the idea that everything can be taught well in all three of those modalities because I don't think that that's true. For example, if you're teaching a woods class, you wouldn't be teaching that project just by having kids read about how to build a cabinet. Like, obviously, that lends itself to a kinesthetic experience. For me, it's just more like find ways to actively engage kids, find ways to actively involve kids, which will usually hit on multiple of these Mm -hmm. learning styles more than saying like, Elaine's a visual learner, so I need to make sure that I have this beautiful color-coded Prezi specifically for her. But Bakari needs to have some, you know, podcast to listen to on the same topic. Well, I would would, would never say no to that. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, students do I mean, they do speak in that language now, right? I mean, like they they have been have they been coached to learn what their learning style is, and and if the if the information is not presented in what they think their learning style is, do they is there tension or pushback from them? I don't, not for my students. I have heard students say, oh, I learn better with visuals. That seems to be the go-to. I, I need to see it so I can know it. But I think what they're really saying is I need it to be modeled, right? I need to, mm-hmm. I need to have um, examples. And I think that that's just standard best practice for teaching. Elaine, you, you seem like you had a thought. I, I yeah, so I had a student teacher this semester, and um, she was very vocal that her preferred learning style was visual and that any information I was trying to give her had to be communicated visually. So anything I would ask of her, she wanted in writing, you know, and that to me was kind of an overgeneralization of what learning style is supposed to be about. But, you know, she's in that generation of students where this really became a common thing for students to do these inventories and talk about it. And clearly in the district that she came from, that was a large focus. Um, And that to me is like, I don't want to hinder a kid from thinking I can't learn kinesthetically or I can't learn auditorily. I can only learn this one way. And some of our kids are that concrete that if we tell them you're a visual learner, they will assume they can only learn in that so one it's like, way. So it's like a little bit of a either a misinterpretation of what learning styles is or a learning styles overkill where you're almost right. you're almost empowering students too much to say, okay, your preferred style is visual, ergo, everything that you do to be to, to be successful must be done visually. Yeah, right. or by the time they're in high school, they can manipulate it to become an excuse. We're like, mm-hmm. I, hey, I'm only a kinesthetic learner, so, you know, no, I can't read the Federalist Papers because I can't sit still. I'm like, come on. From what I hear you all saying, there's, a, there's a, a line, there's a fine line between, you know, needing to challenge your students with the content that you need to teach in a way that you think is most best for them, but then at the same time also appealing to different ways in which they could learn it. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and I worry sometimes that what we're doing in elementary and middle school isn't really setting kids up for success in some of those rigorous high school classes. I really don't know of any middle school teachers that are still using a lecture format, but I know of a lot of AP teachers that are. And we haven't taught kids how to learn in that way. And so they automatically assume like, oh, I'm just not an auditory learner, when really it's like no one's taught you how to process a lecture yet. And we can overcome that hurdle no matter what quote unquote learning style you have. And that sounds like what college teacher or college professors say say about high school. Yeah. And I think it's totally. That's a complete breakdown. We Mm -hmm. have to we're supposed to be more responsive to students needs and, and learning styles. Yes. Whereas by the time they get to college, it's a. One size fits all. Either you Mm -hmm. get it or you don't. And so we're supposed to be training kids to be college ready, and yet we don't do that effectively at all. I completely agree. So it's a a weird—I mean, I think learning styles has has grown up because it is—intuitively, you think it is empowering students because you're telling them, like, this is how you can be successful. 
but at the same time, the way you all are saying it's been implemented or misimplemented, that it's actually been disempowering. I think it would be more effective if we taught kids how to advocate more effectively. So saying like, oh, could you draw that for me? I need to see or I need to see a model or could you explain it using different words? You know, I think that's kind of more where we need to take the conversation and less about Mm -hmm. I need it presented to me in this one way. So even with this with this, I guess, mounting body of research to kind of impugn the idea of learning styles, there is still maybe a a danger of of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Right, because we don't want to find ourselves back in the 1920s, everyone's getting this lecture-style experience because we say we no longer have to pay attention to people's learning styles. I think people do learn differently, and it's important that as teachers we recognize that you need to teach how your students learn best because if you just get up and lecture and they walk away without the information, then you didn't actually teach anything. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll leave that conversation there. We will move on to our final segment before Kids These Days. We got an interesting question recently on our shared community forum document at our Facebook page, and we thought it was a good opportunity to, again, do our segment, You Could Try This. do have a shared Google Doc at our Facebook page where you can make comments and ask questions. And recently, a listener wrote us this question. And I think at least one of our teachers is really fired up to talk about this. How do you handle a colleague who can't or maybe won't innovate or plan for him or herself, but who instead copies all of your plans? So do you have advice? What could this teacher try? So I've talked to a bunch of teachers about this just because I was curious because it puts you in a sticky spot when someone wants to borrow your stuff because, I don't know, you have a collegial relationship. You don't want to be like, no, you can't have it. But Mm -hmm. I was trying to like dig down into why this is so obnoxious because it is. And it seemed like what people were saying over and over is it felt like someone else was taking credit for their work, essentially. One person went so far as to say that in the past they had put a watermark on everything that they shared with a specific colleague. And so that way, if they wanted to go try to make copies of it, it said, like, property of the teacher that created it in the background, which, you know, that's probably one pretty extreme side. So you could try that. Um, Something that's maybe a little bit less inflammatory that people talked about was doing some co-planning where it's like, I'm going to plan for Monday. Here's, you can do the stuff for Tuesday to kind of divvy up the workload. But this is a really contentious issue among teachers. Well, the second thing that you brought up brings up the idea that, okay, if you're going to co-plan like that, and so this, this, this theoretical person that you're partnering with who is already not planning for themselves and probably, I'm assuming, is probably not creating great lesson plans, mm-hmm. that they're going to start creating lesson plans for you. Yeah, but I guess <laughs> I'm trying to decide... I I don't know what this person, if it's a can't do or a won't do. Like, maybe they really don't know how to plan. Some people don't. Like, they really genuinely don't know where to start or they find that process overwhelming. And so maybe planning with someone else will help that. Now, if they're just being lazy, that's a totally different issue. And I would not suggest co-planning with them. Bakari, Greg. I think you just hit on the benefit of being in a small school where I'm the only one who teaches the content. So I don't have to deal with that issue because I'm the only one who teaches government. So this situation is never... Uh, has never popped up. I guess for me... Easy out. Come on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> for me, I, I have, I guess, more questions. I wonder if it is a can-do, won't-do. I wonder just the environment, the climate of the building. Is it? Do they have very collegial relationships with their colleagues, or is it a very uh, tense and um, frustrating environment? Um, because if it is, it changes the way that you would navigate that. And if it's just a colleague who's like their friend who just continues to uh, slack off, but they keep sharing it with them, 
and it's doing right by kids and they, they're executing the lesson effectively, I really wouldn't see an issue with it if they if they're executing for kids in the best way possible. Now, if it's a compliance issue, they're just using your lesson plan so they can get the check mark that, oh, I turned in my lesson plans this week. I think then it's a matter of just stop sharing them because then their evaluators, or their administrators will notice that they're not getting their, they're not following the um, policies of the building and it, it creates a different type of conversation. But if this, if the colleague is struggling to plan effectively for kids and they're just asking for support or um, they're needing some guidance on that, I think then I would, as a colleague, be willing to help them out and, like, say, here, here's how you can start. And then I would start bringing them in to, like, co-plan, like, walking through my planning process and, like, try to help them build that skill. And then it'll kind of, like, gradual release. Okay, let's plan this week together. And then next week or a couple weeks, it could be I do Monday and Tuesday, you do Wednesday and Thursday. But I think bringing them in and allowing them to see part of that planning process so you're not just giving them, oh, here's my documents for the week or here's my plans for the week. It's like, let me walk you through this and, like, show you what I was thinking so that I can help you begin to do it yourself. But I think ultimately my question becomes, are they doing it for compliance or are they doing it because they're, they're, their plans are not as effective for the kids? I guess my question would be, how effective is the offending teacher at teaching someone else's lesson plans? Because in my experience, when when you're presented, when you're given someone else's plans, it, it never goes as well as the originator of the lesson plan. So, I mean, wouldn't that pop up at at some point uh, on somebody's that's my, that's my That's the question because, again, if it's compliance, just stop passing it on. But if, they, yeah. if it's impacting kids and they're not able to effectively teach in their classroom, mm-hmm. then I feel like there's more of an obligation to to share and to help and coach them up and even involve their instructional coach mm-hmm. or involve building level leadership to say, hey, I think this teacher may need some support because I'm continuing to have to give them my lesson plan week to week. Yeah, I have a really effective co-planning relationship. Shout out to Chelsea. Um, and our ideas are way better because we co-plan mm-hmm. everything. Like our kids, eighth grade math and algebra stuff is so much better with both of us doing it. But it's it's kind of a thing where we'll talk through the ideas together and then we'll divvy up like, okay, you're going to create this material. I'll create this material. Here's how we're going to teach it. Um, and it's really nice and it's lightened both of our loads a lot. But you have to have that strong working relationship before that can happen. So if you're in doubt, just watermark your stuff. (laughs) That's the one takeaway. But you, Elena, you said that this was a contentious issue when you were were asking your colleagues. Why contentious? Because it feels really personal when someone takes something that you've worked really hard on. I get that. It feels like they're stealing from you almost is the words people were using is like this person's stealing my stuff. Um, And I think that, I don't know, that speaks to a lot of stuff. Teachers don't have enough common plan time, so resources are kind of Mm -hmm. created in a silo. And I get that. You've spent hours perfecting something. Someone else is teaching off of it, and you feel like they're taking your credit. Well, I think it also speaks to the competitiveness of teachers as well. Yes, that that too. I feel like if I have the best lesson plans, I want to have the best social studies class in this building so no one else should have my plans because then they're going to be they're going to be able to do what I'm doing. And I think that that's kind of the mindset that has mm-hmm. to be shifted. And, and I think that's shout out to Chelsea and Elaine for being able to co-plan because I think that that is the ideal place where we are able to come together because two brains are better than one, especially when thinking about impacting our kids. And so I think we have to shift our minds as educators that we're a team. Like we are all actually here for the same purpose. And I'm not trying to outshine you. We're trying to get our kids to, to move to the next level. Well, and to use a kipism, like it takes the shift into thinking that all the kids are ours. It's mm-hmm. not my kids and your kids. It's just mm-hmm. our kids. Um, but it does take a lot of time to get to that point with someone. I agree. 
Well, stay tuned. We are going to do Kids These Days after the credits. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kaufman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control, and what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours, giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard this episode, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Greg, what are your kids into? So now as the, as the school year is winding down, we're getting towards graduation, now is the time for senior pranks. Uh, and so you, the best senior pranks that, that I've ever seen are the ones that, that hit that nice balance of um, it's funny, it's unexpected, but it's not um, maybe directed at one person. It's not hurtful, and everybody can get a laugh at. So recently, um, our seniors paid a lot of money to get as many packing peanuts as possible and pack them into our assistant principals and our principals' offices. Uh, so much so that that they had trouble opening the door. It was it it was pretty pretty awesome. And I say, Bakari, the assistant principal at the table, is rolling his eyes. <laughs> well, right. it, the the thing it, it our assistant principal took it really well. Our principal took it really well, and and the seniors they they knew what they were doing, and and they had a vacuum cleaner set up, and they they were ready to go. So they spent the next three hours cleaning up without even being asked. The entire office. Yes, the, the entire office. office, like com- just about completely filled. They, they end up spending, I think, about $100 on packing peanuts. Wow. So kudos to them. That takes effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bakari, hopefully your kids aren't into that. They what, definitely what are not. <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> thankfully. Um, my kids are into two things right now. The spring weather. <laughs> I'm in middle school. They've, they've had this increased need to play tag. I don't know why, <laughs> but well, I have some, <laughs> some assumptions around that. <laughs> Um, but they're they're playing tag, and that's like boys to boys, girls to girls, boys on girls. Like they just want to play tag, like literally Everywhere. running down the hallway oh. trying to play tag. I, I don't just I'm like stop. Um, and then the second thing is mostly a, a boy thing. They're dunking on each other. Like if you're at your locker, they'll just come up behind you and like dunk on you. And it's I think <laughs> I don't. Know. What you're does that the, What does that look like? Like they're literally just jumping Jump. behind you and like dunking, and it's like. Huh. You got dunked on. And like, there's always a spectator. It's like someone who's dunking, and then there's a spectator who makes you know that, oh, you just got dunked on. And you're like, I wasn't even paying attention. I'm in my locker. Um, so that's the two things my students are Have you right gotten now. dunked on yet? Uh, they're not crazy. <laughs> 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 they may be wait- Maybe that's a prank they'll be pulling toward the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elaine, what are your kids into? So our kids have created something in this last week called the Banana Clout, C-L-O-U-T, gang. And to be in the Banana Clout gang, you have to carry a banana in your pocket. And when the leader pulls out his banana phone, you have to pull out your banana phone and start having a conversation. Uh, wow. This is not... Weird. Is this it's a, so weird. Is this a literal banana? It's a li- like they're stealing them from breakfast bananas. <clears throat> There's two of them so that have it? matching shirts with bananas on them that they bought together last week specifically for Banana Clout Gang. What's the what's with the clout? I don't know. Gang? That's the part I'm waiting to see when the other shoe is going to drop because that that's coming. I just don't know when. So is that a banana in your pocket or yes, a banana. <laughs> <laughs> don't say that in a middle school. That's Do right. not say that in a middle school. Uh, all right. Well, thanks to our teachers this week, Greg Brenner, Elaine Jarden. And Bakari Ukuu, thanks as always to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to 
KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And don't forget, if you live in the Kansas City area, No Wrong Answers is hosting a live event at Paseo High School Thursday, May 10th. That's the Thursday after this episode drops. The topic, school choice, always a hot-button issue in Kansas City. Hope you can join us. And remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. (laughs) 